In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. When we get to Great Lent, oftentimes we uh, seem like that we are ready for difficult things to happen. Oftentimes uh, people joke, I've heard people joke, hashtag Great Lent problems, or something like that when something happens. But when we get to the Feast of the Dormition, or the Dormition Fast, we should probably have the same sort of joke. Hashtag Dormition Fast problems. Uh, Because as I've talked to a number of you throughout the course of this week uh, about many different things, uh, it seems like this week or even the last couple of weeks since we've been in the Dormition Fast have been a heavy time for the world, a heavy time for the church, a heavy time for uh, all of us in unique individual ways with the many myriad various struggles and things that we have going on in our life. And those things happen during the seasons of fasting when we, Lord willing, are putting ourselves more squarely into a mode of attempting to discern and see the will of God in our life and attempting to do everything we can to follow after Christ. And thankfully, the Lord gives us at the end of those fasting times a great feast. Something which, Lord willing, can remind us of the great glory of God, the great work of God, and to encourage us and challenge us and give us hope uh, for the expectation of the victory that is to come in the future. And this is one of those days. And I am so very, very, very thankful that this Feast of the Dormition of the Mother of God uh, falls this year, because it's every year on August the 15th, but that it falls this year on a Sunday because then all of us are able to be here and to celebrate and to participate in the great festivities of this beautiful feast. Because this particular feast day is sometimes in the literature of the church called even a second Pascha. And if I had to perhaps even uh, put a rank on the feasts, if, if Pascha is one and Nativity is two, I might even put Dormition as three. Because it is just a very, very important feast. Because on this feast, on this day, we are uh, shown to be reminded of three very important things. First of all, the proof that the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ not only happened, but that it changed death because it happened. Secondly, that it changes death, not just for the mother of God, but for all of us. And third, Lord willing, because we know those two things, that we are then able to face the challenges of this world with that great hope and with the expectation of that victory. So how does it prove the resurrection of Christ? Well, there's some beautiful tradition around uh, this great feast of the Dormition. That where we celebrate the repose, the falling asleep, the death of the mother of God. And according to the tradition of the church, when Mary died, she was at that time living in the city of Jerusalem. And uh, it is said that she would go very frequently to the Holy Sepulchre to pray. To the tomb, to the place where her son had been uh, laid in the tomb and where he rose again from the dead. She would go to the tomb. Well, on one of those visits to the tomb, the tradition says that the archangel Gabriel came and visited her just like he had visited her those many years before to tell her that she would bear a child 
he came and visited her and told her that she was going to die. And she rejoiced. And he even gave her a, a palm frond as a, as a symbol of the promise that she would die, but that she would be at that time reunited with her son. And she goes back to her home there in Jerusalem, which of course was John's home, because John, our patron, was the one who was given, uh, care, uh, for, given to care for her after our Lord's crucifixion. She goes to the home, and miraculously, before she dies, all of the apostles from the ends of the world, as the, the hymnography of the prophecy service said, uh, all of the apostles, in a very mysterious, miraculous way, are brought to her bedside. Even the Apostle Paul, who was not one of the original twelve, but Paul came to her bedside. All of those apostles, of course, except Thomas, and we'll get to him later. But Thomas wasn't there, but all of them were there at her bedside when she finally peacefully reposed. And the tradition says that when she reposed, the heavens opened and her son came to take her soul into the kingdom of heaven. And so in the iconography of the church, which is uh, one of these back icons on the wall there, we see our Lord holding his mother in his, in his arms, which is, of course, the reverse of how we normally see the two of them, where Mary is holding her son uh, in her arms. But Christ is holding her, showing that she is being born again into the kingdom of heaven in her soul at that moment. Well, it doesn't finish there. Because as they do when someone, when someone reposes, they prepare the body and they take that body from the place of, of uh, death to the place of burial. And so the, all of the apostles and those who were there took up the coffin of the mother of God and they processed through the streets to the place where she would be buried. And the tradition says that, that there were even those who were unbelievers who want to disrupt the procession. But they were kept from doing so. And the icon, not the one that's on the wall, but in the one that you can venerate in the back, you'll see there a, a man standing with his arms cut off and a fiery sword that is, that is there on the side. And that's because the tradition is that he went to try to push over the coffin of the mother of God and he was kept from doing so by an angel sweeping down and cutting his arms. Thankfully, he was healed and he actually joined in the procession singing the praises of God, and went to bury the mother of God. Well, they went to her tomb, which, interestingly enough, was actually in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, that should ring a bell, because that's where our Lord went to pray. And he went there to pray, because the tradition is that there was his family burial plot. Joachim and Anna were buried there, and so they took the mother of God to the family burial plot to be buried there along with her parents. And so they buried her, they closed the tomb, and they kept vigil there at the tomb for a couple of days. After a couple of days of keeping vigil, Thomas finally appears. And when Thomas appears, he is grieved that he was not able to... Uh, say his goodbye, give his final kiss to the Theotokos before her death. And so he asked that they remove the stone from the tomb so that he could venerate her body one last time. And of course the tradition is that they remove the stone from the tomb and there in the tomb was just her grave clothes. No body. She had been translated, she had been taken up bodily into heaven after her death. 
She died, they sang that funeral service, they laid her in the tomb, and she is resurrected in her body into the heavenly kingdom. And that is what proves to us the resurrection of Christ did something. That it changed death, it changed death's dominion over us because death no longer has dominion over us because our Lord was able to take his mother who is then the first fruit of uh, the resurrection from the dead and take her bodily into the heavenly kingdom. And so this feast reminds us of the fact of the resurrection and that the resurrection is not just about Christ, but it's about the mother of God and therefore it's also about all of us. Because the second thing that this feast tells us is that it's not just Mary who will be raised that way, but all of us will be as well. When we say in the creed, we believe in the resurrection of the dead, we're not talking about a a ghostly uh, being. We're not talking about an angelic raising, uh, sort of a spiritual sort of resurrection. We are talking about a physical resurrection from the dead. So that we can, in our bodies, participate in and experience the fullness of the kingdom of heaven. Everything that God has for us, uh, prepared for us, in our bodies. Now, of course, all of us likely won't be told when we are going to die. And that we won't be immediately translated into heaven after just a couple of days in the tomb. That that resurrection will happen on the last day when our Lord returns And all of us are raised from the dead. But this feast does prove to us that it's all of us. All of us. Not just the mother of God, but all of us who have the opportunity to participate in the fullness of the resurrection from the dead. In the body. Not just in some sort of spiritual reality, but in the body. And Lord willing, when we know those two things... We are able to, with greater hope, with greater expectation, face the difficulties of this life. Because this life is excruciatingly difficult sometimes. It's extraordinarily difficult at times. Gwen agrees with me. She waved. (laughs) This life is extraordinarily difficult at times. But what we hear in the gospel this morning is that great, perfect reminder when we know about the resurrection of Christ. In the gospel reading for every feast of the mother of God, not just this one, we actually don't see the mother of God in it at all. Instead, we see a different Mary. Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus. And Martha complains to Christ that Mary is not helping her out with the tasks around the house. And our Lord looks at Martha and says to her, and on this feast day to all of us, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Anxious and troubled about many things. I think that really is, sums up at least how I feel and likely how many of us feel as well. Anxious and troubled about many things. But he says one thing is needful. Mary has chosen the good portion and it will not be taken from her. Christ is talking about Mary, the sister of of Martha and Lazarus at that moment. But the church connects that reading to this feast so that we know that Mary, the Theotokos, the mother of God, she has chosen the good portion and it will not be taken from her. And the one thing needful, the good portion that she has chosen is to take everything that she has and to yoke her life to Christ. She chose from a very young age 
to follow God and to follow his commandments. And even though her life was excruciatingly difficult because, as the scripture says, a sword pierced her heart also. She didn't just run away. She faced it, pondering things in her heart, as the Gospel of Luke says. Pondering things in her heart, but facing them with the expectation and the hope of the resurrection to come. And she was able to then experience it. And so, brothers and sisters, on this feast, we see the great example for all of us. That though we are anxious and troubled about many things, that we, like Mary, should turn our entire beings and our hope and our hearts to Christ. To follow the commandments of God over and above everything else. And to look and know that the resurrection is something that did indeed happen and changed everything about death. And if we, like Mary, latch on to that one thing needful and that good portion, we too will be raised in victory and raised in glory. This is what I needed today. That strong and healthy reminder for us. And may that serve as a powerful reminder for all of us as we are anxious and troubled about many things. The truth of the resurrection, its power in our own life, so that we can face the difficulties of this life and look ahead with expectation, look ahead with hope, and see and experience on the last day with Mary and all of the saints the great victory of Christ. Glory to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.